Hey everybody, this is Peter Diamandis, and welcome to our next episode of Exponential Wisdom with my dear friend and co-conspirator, Dan Sullivan. And today we're going to talk about a fun subject, dangerous ideas. I like the way that sounds, dangerous ideas. Like If I said to someone, you want to hear about some dangerous ideas, I think people would perk up and go, yeah, dangerous to who? And what kind of danger are you talking about? Our brain, our amygdala goes on flashing red alert, like dangerous ideas. Okay. So how about we talk about some dangerous ideas? The big thing is that I've noticed, because I have the benefit of seven decades, well, at least six conscious, that what constitutes danger today is different from what constituted danger in the 1950s. So there's a lot of dangers today that aren't physical dangers. They're more psychological, emotional, intellectually dangerous ideas. Do you feel that that's also the case? The quality of the danger and how it affects us. Yeah, I mean, danger has a lot of different meanings for a lot of different people today. You know, there's far fewer dangers to end my life, Mm -hmm. but a lot of dangers to maybe and your meaning. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to start throw out some dangerous ideas, and I'd like to sort of kick them around. So I was with a few libertarian friends the other day, and we're thinking about, you know, the government does a poor job of a lot of services out there. And I bet you that using blockchain technology, we could almost privatize everything. Mm-hmm. I started thinking about this experiment, and I said, what if I didn't pay taxes, but instead I took not 50% of my income is, you know, the United States is crazy that we're paying so much in taxes as compared to other parts of the world. But if I took like 30% or 25% of my income instead, and I put up bounties and I said, listen, if my house ever caught on fire, I'm going to put up a $50,000 bounty that anybody who comes puts out the fire, I'll put up in the blockchain. Other people do that as well. And all of a sudden, there are private companies that are putting out fires because it's a good business to put out fires. Hopefully, no one's incentivized to set the fire, then put it out. But could you do the same thing if you had an intruder and you needed security services? And yeah, God knows I'd probably pay for people to stop delivering mail to my house, not to throw it away all the time. But what do you think about that idea? First of all, I think it's probably happening already, but it's not. Since the news media is generally tied in with government, you don't get the news media talking about, I mean, talking about it in a straightforward way like you're talking about it, you know, that basically every activity in government should be a sunset activity, and there's measurable results. I mean, right now, government is rewarded to fail because they can get more money out of failure than they can out of success. What if you reverse (laughs) them? I mean, you know, the marketplace operates, I mean, if it's an honest marketplace and it's an honest company, it operates just by the opposite principle that you only get rewarded for your tangible, measurable successes. And it's not tangible measurement in your eyes, it's tangible, measurable in the eyes of the marketplace. So, again, dangerous idea here. That is, is a dangerous place. idea. I hope we don't get put on a list here, Peter. Yeah, I'm always concerned. But, you know, at the end of the day... See, that's a danger, say, that you go on a list. Yeah, well, that is dangerous, in which case I would just need to put them back on my list. 
<laughs> <laughs> yeah, but for those who are not familiar with blockchain, can you give them the, as it exists today, uh, and what you're seeing more and more as the real payoff for this, where it's actually an operation in the world? Oh, goodness. I mean, this will be, and we should do a podcast on blockchain. Yeah, that's like an hour. But the notion of blockchain, if you think of it as a trusted ledger that if I put $100,000 into essentially an escrow and said and defined that my house is on fire, this $100,000 is there for the first person to put it out. And then it's there as a contract that's put out and can't be changed. Anybody can see it. And then if they meet the criteria for that condition, they can get payment probably in Bitcoin. I just found some Bitcoin I had invested in a while ago, and it was like, oh, that's a nice surprise to see it go from 500 bucks to 4,000 bucks, and it's been growing exponentially. God knows where it will be in a year or two. Different story. Here's another dangerous idea. But that's dangerous. That's a dangerous idea right yeah, there. Well, you're, I mean, what you're seeing is spectrums coming off a single innovation that endangers a lot of existing structures and agreements. We could see the end of banks. We could see the collapse of Wall Street as a useful function from blockchain and cryptocurrencies coming online, getting rid of fiat money. Whatever is large-scale institutional structures that people have built livelihoods and entire groups on, and if something comes along that serves people better and they just migrate to that and what was left collapses under its own weight... Those are dangerous ideas. So blockchain and fintech and cryptocurrencies disrupting the financial industry very much. And I know many people working on that. A very similar one, Dan, that we talked about earlier was if AI becomes the best way to educate kids, I you know, I have two six-year-old boys. If at some point, rather than sending them to school, I want to turn them over to an AI which entertains them which teaches them, which understands their skills, understands what they just learned, and mm-hmm. understands when they're learning or not learning. I can imagine a point where it's irresponsible to send them to schools and have human teachers teaching them. Mm-hmm. And if in that future, all of a sudden you've got the entire teachers union collapsing under its own weight, if it's not being used because kids aren't going there, it's like you know when mobile phones became so much better, the entire landline industry had to be sort of disrupted. Verizon, AT&T, all these companies went from 80% landline and 20% mobile to 20% landline, 80% mobile. So human teachers are going to transform how they teach or be disrupted as a result of it. Well, the interesting thing is the school system as we know it only goes back to about the middle of the 19th century. There was no school system People were taught at home, or they were taught by churches, or they were taught by local, you know, voluntary organizations and everything. And my feeling is that the entire school system is really a function today of the factory system of the 19th century, where children are considered a raw material. You bring them in at whatever age, you know, depending on nursery school or kindergarten, and then their raw material is processed through 12 levels of its, you know, a 1 to 12, and hopefully 
by the end of the 12th year, you've taken whatever originality was there when they were six years old, and you've gotten rid of it by the time they're 18. Absolutely. And then there's the rebels, you know, the kids who rebel against it. I created my own school system when I was 11 years old based on Britannica Encyclopedia. And my mother told me that reading was more important than going to school. And she said, your teachers are only teaching you what they were taught. And she went down this line. She said, so you have to learn how to teach yourself. But at the same time, you got to go to school. So you're talking about the system where they would get the first two messages, they wouldn't get the third. Yeah. Another similar system that's provided by our industrial socioeconomic base is healthcare. Mm -hmm. There is a point in the not too distant future where the cost of health, where we dematerialize, demonetize, and democratize healthcare, where you know your handheld device is your diagnostician. Surgery is done by robots where the cost of surgery is a thousand times cheaper. It's the cost of electricity and the assets. So, Well, here's a dangerous yeah. idea that you have with your involvement in the stem cell, you know, creating a worldwide stem cell network, that what if the human body itself was the source of all solutions to any kind of sickness you had, that inside your body are all the pharma that you need. And, you know, there's got to be outside guidance, probably with people who really know how to teach you how to use your own body. I mean, that's really what I see the beginning of the stem cell payoff, that you have things inside of yourself, or you can borrow stem cells from other people to actually transform anything that didn't come out in the original design when you landed on the planet. Upgrade your genome, so to speak. That's a dangerous idea, yeah. pharmas, you know, the stocks. Well, I mean, listen, another dangerous idea. I mean, pharmas will always be needed as stopgap things. I mean, if I'm in ER, you know, my body's not going to be in any position to repair itself right then and there. It's going to need a stopgap solution. The whole question is getting addicted to that and dependent on it for your entire life. Another related dangerous idea is the whole CRISPR-Cas9, which is if I'm able to upgrade my genome while I'm alive, I can go and edit myself, or more controversial is let me edit my kids. I have this conversation all the time just to irritate people over dinner, and I'm saying, of course you should genetically engineer your children. I mean, what are you, crazy? Why would you not? I mean, just to precipitate a good argument... I'll say, didn't you give your pregnant wife the best medical care she could get? Didn't you give your kids the best clothing and education and health care they can get? Why wouldn't you start with the best genetics you could give your kids? Why would you stop short of the root material? Why don't you give your kids sort of like, you know, access to the food in your backyard or, or just what you can teach them? Why are you going to go out and buy better education or better food? So it's an interesting conversation that you could build a argument that it's immoral not to give your kids the best genetic starting composition possible. This brings up why people pick the person that they pick anyway as the parent, the fellow parent of your children. And I'll tell you a story on this. When my mother was my age, 73, I took her on a two-week vacation of Italy. And we talked a lot about her childhood and meeting my dad and everything else. And I said, can I ask you a question? I says, what's the number one reason why you married dad? And she said, well, my family was very sickly and he was incredibly physically strong. 
So I thought that who he was, you know, I don't know if she used the word genes in those days, but she said, I knew that the children that we produced, they had a chance of really being strong like him and not sickly like my own family. That's genetic planning. That's That's genetic bias. (laughs) Yeah, well, my feeling that the greatest source of inequality on the planet is families. Families disproportionately favor their offspring more than they do anyone else's offspring. Absolutely. Yeah, you're just taking it further. You know, everything you're talking about, Peter, every dangerous idea you've mentioned before already exists. The road to that really, really dangerous payoff that you're talking about already exists in rudimentary form. True. It does. I mean, the thing you're talking about is having a bounty for someone who will take care of a possible fire at your home. I mean, insurance is really the beginning of anticipating that something might come down the road. But with blockchain, you're talking about an instantaneous insurance payoff without any of the middlemen. Basically, what blockchain does, I mean, the huge impact is the disintermediation that happens because of blockchain. Because right now, F.A. Hayek, who wrote The Road to Serfdom, he said that the tragedy of capitalism is that it was named by its enemies. He says, capitalism actually isn't about capital. That's a byproduct. He says, capitalism is an ever-expanding system of increased cooperation among strangers. Yes. Okay. And so what blockchain is the ultimate trust among strangers that you can possibly have on the planet. Another dangerous idea I've spoken about is we're heading towards a post-capitalist society where money has less and less value. So I'm best described myself as a libertarian capitalist. I'm an entrepreneur, 19 companies in the mm-hmm. that I've started or in the process of starting. And I love entrepreneurship and I love capitalism and wealth is a way of storing energy for use for doing other things. But there is a point and it looks very much like the Star Trek universe where in the future Money has very little value because, you know, you've got nanotechnology and AI and and you can manufacture anything you want for micro cents on the dollar out of materials you've gotten. So a Ferrari costs really the amount of energy and raw material cost. So it's an interesting future we're heading towards in that regard. Yeah, but I think the post-capitalism that you're talking about here is just post this present form of capitalism. I think what you're talking about is taking capitalism to a much more guaranteed level than we've had. You know, it's a much more trusting capitalism because the blockchain can't be tampered with. They can't be hacked. You know, you can't steal out of a blockchain I mean, it's already being used. I'm sure one of the big users of blockchain is going to be Amazon because they're dealing with billions of transactions. And to have absolute trust built into every part of that transaction chain, I'm sure they're looking at that right now. So my feeling is that capitalism isn't so much a system. It's a constant expansion that you can trust strangers, that, you know, all over the world, you can trust somebody who lives 12,000 or lives on Mars, you know, the blockchain to Mars and everything like that. And my feeling is that it's one of the building blocks of a more trusting society. So we need a new name for capitalism, cooperationalism. (laughs) Well, yeah, unfortunately, Marx left an indelible part, you know, Marx, you know, and the thinkers before Marx, I mean, they thought it was a bad thing. 
or they thought it was bad because they weren't in control of it. What's another dangerous idea? Well, the education thing is really, really registers high. Right now, in the country of Germany, if you try to teach your children in any other way except the state system, you will be arrested. Wow. And your child can be taken away from you. Your child can be taken away from you by the state. There can't be any other educational input into your children except what the state of Germany does. And that's a tyranny. I mean, if you think about it, the way that you're creating... Jawohl. Yeah, well, the way that you're, you know, a lot of bad ideas have come from Germany, so this is just another one. <laughs> but to think about with your twins, the alternative educational system that you've introduced them to, in Germany, you would be getting headwinds on what you're doing there. Well, there's so many educational avenues and experiments going on in different parts of the world. Another one, a dangerous idea, it doesn't seem dangerous to me, it seems logical, but people react funny to it, is one that you and I share in common, which is hyper-longevity. Mm -hmm. The desire to live 150 years in one case. 56. I'm not going to shortchange you six years, dude. 156 years or... You know, when I get to 150, I'm really, really focused in on those six extra years, so don't... I look forward to that conversation. Dan, do you really want to cut it short in six years? I mean, can you get on the Peter plan and add a few hundred more? <laughs> uh, but you know, people react interestingly. I, I tell you, if I'm 150 and we're buddies, you'll do everything you can to possibly convince me to go longer. I am sure I will. I'm sure I will. So will Babs. So is extreme longevity, and just to define this for people, this is your health span, it's feeling great, being clear, it's cognition, mobility, and looking good. And having purpose. And, and having yes, purpose. Yeah. I think Man. I think it's interesting, you know, the, the having purpose part, being driven, having the hunger and desire to be alive and not exhausted. Mm -hmm. You know, as our mutual friend Joe Polish once told me, the man who has his health has a thousand dreams, the man who doesn't has but one. Mm -hmm. And so true, but is extreme healthy longevity a dangerous idea? Is it dangerous for society? Sure, it's extraordinarily socially disruptive, the idea. You know, I mean, I can see it. When Babs and I get to the end of the year and we look back at what kind of monetary investment we've made in fitness and health with all the testing and exploration and that, we're putting out a couple hundred thousand dollars every year for that. And we just consider it as an investment. We don't even see it as a cost. We see it as an investment item. Well, you know, I'm getting to the point where I'll start losing siblings who really bought into that they're, you know, you're going to get around 80, maybe 85. We have good longevity in our family. You know, dad died at 83. My mother died at 87. Babs father, he was 84, her mother died at 95. But what if you start getting the 110s, 120s, 130s, and you don't know a single person that is alive when you were born, I mean, even growing up. Mm -hmm. And one of the things is you constantly have to be renewing your relationships with human beings, and they have to be younger and younger than you. I've had a plan in place for 40 years that every 10 years I'm going to make friends with someone who is then a teenager. Well, I consider myself lucky in that regard. And I just mean friends there. I just mean no, friends I there, Peter. I, I, I don't want to suggest it, anything. anything there. You know, I don't want to be on a list here. I consider myself lucky in two dimensions. One, I have my six-year-old twin boys that are definitely 
keep me very young. So you got 50 years there. Yeah, I got a, I got a 50 year differential. Then I have my team, my PhD ventures team, my strike force team that are in there typically in 21 to 30 ish. And it's refreshing because they're friends, they're colleagues. I spend a lot of time with them and the energy and you know, I think mindset is one of the most important parts of mm-hmm. a longevity plan. It's like feeling mm-hmm. like, and Norman Lear, who's a dear friend, Norman, creator mm-hmm. of so many amazing TV shows. He's 95. He was on TED last year, TED stage with another dear friend of mine, Eric Hirschberg, who's the CEO of Activision. Eric was interviewing Norman and Eric asked him, how old do you feel? And he goes, you know, I feel the same age as the person I'm interacting with. He said, I reflect back the age and the person I'm with. And that's amazing. And I love that. Mm -hmm. And I love that sense. I had a similar conversation a couple weeks ago. Someone asked me, it was Dean Jackson, who you know really well. We do a podcast series called The Joy of Procrastination because we're we're black belt procrastinators. So we got two masters talking to each other. I'm about 22 years older than Dean, and he says, how old do you feel? How do you experience your age? And I said, you know, I have tremendous emotional memories of my childhood. And I said, you know, I don't feel emotionally any different than I did when I was six, seven, eight years old. I still feel that the future is all ahead of me. I've got this, you know, it's one of my laws. I have a thing called the 10 laws of lifetime growth. And the first law is always make your future bigger than your past. The whole point is no matter how much experience that I've had, you know, and I've had 73 years experience probably, you know, let's say 65 years of real conscious experience. And I say, I just see it all as raw material for learning from my past that's usable in the future. So I said, that's a constant in my life that everything that I've experienced in the past is just raw material for new learning that's then applicable to the rest. So I feel, you know, I don't feel any older at 73 than I did, you know, when I was first leaving home at 18. I don't feel any older. My total attitude towards what lies ahead is pretty constant over that period of time. I agree with you, and I completely get that, and I feel very similar. I just have a much broader base of experiences to pull from, but my joy, my nervousness, my excitement, my I keep on having a sense of, like, when am I going to get to adulthood, or you know, who's the adult here, or is this what adults feel like, or is... It's interesting, right? And I think that that is an important part of a dangerous idea, that you can feel as young as you desire to be. Yeah. And a lot of people just choose to not go there. We've got this neat thinking process in Strategic Coach, which is called the Lifetime Extender. And I'll ask somebody, at what age do you expect to die? I said, just write down a number. You know, everybody does. So I'll take one person. I said, when are you going to die? What age are you going to die? And they say, 80. And I said, how old are you? And he says, 50. And I said, okay, I want to talk about year 79. How do you want to be physically? Great shape. Mentally sharp. Financially, oh, not a worry in the world. Quality of your relationships, all varied, very powerful relationships. And your assessment of the life that you've lived up until 79, what do you want to say about that? Oh, gee, I just really took best advantage of my life. And I said, okay. So I repeated back to him. I've got a good memory for those things I'll repeat. So this is how you are at 79. What do you think the chances are you're going to die 
in the next year. And they said, well, I went. And I said, so if you were that way, 79 going into 80, how much longer would you live? And they said, I don't know, 10 or 15 years. And I said, well, which, 10 years or 15 years? Well, 15 years. And I shake his hand and I say, congratulations, you've been with me for a half hour and I just gave you 15 more years. (laughs) And you know, the truth is, I need a lawn study to show whether I've actually increased people's because I've been doing this since the 90s, early 90s. And I said, I want to tell you something. You will notice over the next quarter that you're looking at everything different in your life because your exit number is now 95 rather than 80. Okay, that would be the basis of an education for people because they change things. And I've seen people who are planning to retire at 65 who are in the program at 80, and I gave them another 15 years. And that's all mindset. It's that expectation of what is now going to be normal. I mean, I can't think of my lifetime except in terms of 156. I'm 73. I'm not even halfway I'm not at middle age, specific numerical middle age right now, but I agree with you. I mean, that was one of the biggest attractors when I first found out about you is that we had this, (laughs) I mean, you consider me sort of a limited kind of guy, you know, but so what? You know, I've got 83 years before it becomes a serious problem. (laughs) I'll convince you of your alternates. So last dangerous idea I want to throw out there, it's an idea I think will attract a number of people, but may shock others is I think we're very rapidly heading towards the end of petroleum mm-hmm. and carbon, you know, coal, oil, diesel. We're heading towards the expiration of whale oil. I'm not sure when the last time you used whale oil, but I think a number of factors are driving us very rapidly towards the end of petroleum mm-hmm. for 90% of its usages. Mm-hmm. And that's exciting. I, I can talk about why, but you told me a story, interestingly enough, about, is it your grandmother? Great-grandmother. Great-grandmother. Yeah, so this is Cleveland, West Cleveland, the western part of the city. It was my great-grandmother. I didn't know my great-grandmother, but my grandmother told me that when she was a child, twice a week, a wagon, a horse-drawn wagon, would come, and containers would be taken off the wagon, and it was the kerosene supply, because the lighting was done with kerosene, cooking was done with kerosene, And she said, here's the interesting thing about it. The man who delivered it to our door was John D. Rockefeller, because the Rockefeller is a Cleveland family. And before they got into oil, the big trade that they had was kerosene, which, of course, is made from wood, sap from wood. You know, and that immediately disappeared very, very quickly. When there's widespread acceptance of a brand new thing as clearly superior, the old thing disappears very, very quickly. Yeah. I used to think that oil and gas would stick around for a long while because of cars, since, you know, a car can have an average lifetime on the road of 30, 40 years, right? What are we in 2017, 30 years ago? You know, there are lots of cars from the 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s still on the road here 50 years later. And at the end of the day, what's going to kill that is going to be electric autonomous cars when electric Mm -hmm. autonomous cars are so much cheaper than a car, 10 times cheaper. You'll park your car, you'll part your car, you'll sell your car and start using electric, autonomous Ubers, Teslas, Lyfts, or the case might be. And so I think there's gonna be a massive decline in the need for gasoline. And then you've also got this continuous precipitous fall in solar 
and this explosion in wind. So, and then I've just met this amazing company that's... Can they make them less ugly? That's the biggest thing I have against the yeah, wind. They, yeah, there are some interesting... Yeah, that, I mean, I consider them a huge eyesore. They destroy countrysides and everything. Those large propellers, just that's what causes the Earth to rotate. You know, those are just propulsion system. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> oh, gee, glad you told me. Uh, I have no doubt, you know, that this is going to happen. But people will do it because it makes sense out of their budget for the next month or for the next year. You know, I mean, when you get the price point down and the convenience and it's just as fast to get recharged. I will tell you this. Here's the thing that's going to stop it. And I notice it already that my Tesla experience has removed an opportunity for me in my life to be a hero to Babs, mm. and I'm deeply resenting it because she hated filling up with gas. She hated going into gas stations and filling up. I was always the one that went out and filled it, and I was a hero in her eyes. And from childhood, I've always liked the smell of gasoline, and Tesla has totally removed that opportunity to be a hero for my life. I'm just telling you this. This is a great Maybe but, you can wash her windshields or something or open the door uh, for no, her that's, It's not going to cut it. No, that's not proper compensation at all. <laughs> <laughs> One other dangerous idea that I just saw come over on Abundance Insider which I read about this week, is the work that... Let me ask you a question. Would you hop into a 737 that was flown by a computer and had no pilot up front? It was like, no people, fully autonomous aircraft. Uh, Would you? After about 50 million other people had done it. Oh, man. (laughs) Hey, (laughs) I I take my risks in different areas. Do you know that the most dangerous part of a flight is when a human is in control? Yeah. It's so... Well, most of the airliners, it's the first 10 minutes. So I honestly believe autonomous systems are... Yeah. Yeah. The longest continuous airplane that we've had in the world is the B-52. They were introduced in 1953, I think, and they're still fully operational. So 60, you know, going on 65 years, and they expect them to go a century. So you could see electric autonomous <laughs> B-52s in 2053. But they've changed it so much over the years. You know, it's just a platform that they continually change. I have to tell you, the number one dangerous idea that you talked about, ultimately, because it affects everything else, is the government one, the replacement of government. I had a first step towards this. You want to hear my first step towards this? You take every government building in the United States, you count the number of stories in the building, you go halfway up, and you fire everybody above the halfway mark. Because probably the people on ground floor in the lower stories are actually creating some tangible value. <laughs> that would be a that would be a shift. I don't worry about government <laughs> workers I can see. Uh, I worry about government workers that I can't see. I don't know what they're doing. I don't know what they're man, doing. Man, you are so on a list. Dan, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm just putting out an idea. All Peter right, Dizer. all right. Well, we better cut this one off now. By the way, this was a fun one. It was. I hope folks enjoyed it. And I, I hope that dangerous ideas... I think this should be a regular feature. Yeah, okay, we'll just... I think this... If you can talk about it this way, I think it's really... Because you're you're entertaining that the danger of it is what I call the acceptance momentum. When the acceptance of a new idea, dangerous idea, gains momentum, it loses its danger. Yep. 
And when it threatens so much of the existing institutions and structures and people's livelihood and people's preconceived notions, all these things, we can talk about dangerous ideas of finding life on other planets and its impact on religion. We can talk about all kinds of things, and we should. Yeah, that would be a good one. Yeah, I'm into that. I'm an old science fiction guy, so I really did it. But what's the most dangerous idea for you personally right now? I mean, what's an accessible, possible dangerous idea for you right now? Oh, goodness. I think one of the big dangerous ideas that's exciting for me is the creation of virtual nations, of new institutional structures that are coming into existence and will grow independent of physical nations. Yeah, That's a big idea that is out there. And of course, the stuff that I'm doing in extending the human lifespan and in mining asteroids and all this stuff, I just love this stuff. But more to be continued, pal. Yeah. Always a pleasure to spend time with you. It was really a great one, Peter. I really loved it. Thank you. Thank you, Dan.